Hi, my friends. I do this work with all my heart for you. So please contribute generously to Future Primitive. my friends who listen to Future Primitive. I am on the phone with Diedrich Walsack. And uh, this week, uh, I'm very grateful to welcome him to Future Primitive. Diedrich Walsack is founder and program director of the Choose Again Society in Vancouver, British Columbia. He is also an international workshop leader, speaker, and relationship counselor with years of experience in group facilitation based on the work of the Choose Again Society. Choose Again Society offers a holistic approach to mental, emotional, and spiritual transformation and well-being through attitudinal healing, applied transpersonal psychology, and universal wisdom teachings. I could say a lot more about Diedrich, but um, you, will, uh, you will read that when we publish the interview. I mean, the practical aspects uh, you will read when we publish the interview. But now what I'd like to do is ask you, Diedrich, would you give us a a little story about how you came to be where you are today. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll do my best to keep it very short because it's actually about a 50-year-long story. Right, but right. I'll, <laughs> I'll reduce it to uh, the essential. Good. The, the, the essential is that I spend uh, <clears throat> the first three years of my life uh, in Japanese concentration camps on the island of Java from 1942 to 1945, uh, and when I came out of that, I uh, stayed another five years in Indonesia, which at that time was a war-torn country uh, with lots of danger, lots of insecurity, lots of lack of safety, and I developed a very strong uh, set of core beliefs around that situation. What happens with young people, no matter what their circumstances, Everything that happens around them is about them. So if their mom and dad are gloriously happy, then clearly they must be wonderful little people. <laughs> if their parents are not so happy, then clearly it is their fault. And that's something that um, I certainly wasn't taught uh, to look at it that way. And no therapist I ever worked with saw it that way either. But when I realized that that's what I had done... Um, that's when the, the opportunity for healing started to come. So I made up in the camp years that the camp was my fault. I made up that all the suffering and deaths I've seen around me were my fault. I made up that the danger that we were in on a fairly daily, uh, day-to-day basis was all my fault. Uh-huh. Now, what does a person do with that level of guilt? There's only one thing to do, and that is to project it or to take it in and try to self-destroy Mm-hmm. Well, I, I did both. I projected uh, for a long time. I fought 
physically as well as verbally with anybody that uh, was willing to or uh, unwilling to engage. And I also, uh, from roughly age 14, 15, started self-destructing with alcohol and whatever other means I could get my hands on. And that went on for a good 50 years, till I was about 50, and I realized that if something didn't change, uh, there was absolutely no point of being on this little planet because I wasn't having any fun. I was doing all kinds of drugs. I was certainly medicating with uh, vast amounts of liquor. Um, I was really just living the life of pure and unadulterated self-hatred, which I was expressing in many different ways. Right. And when I was 50, I said, this has to change. There has to be a better way. And I took a year off to study and meditate and just really get to the basics, to, to the absolute source of all the self-hatred. And as I was doing this work, my life started really quickly. It took, um, in, in one year, for example, I went from being um, a restaurant owner and hotel manager to being a counselor without ever having thought of being a counselor. Wow. That just happened because people started noticing that I was, I was changing and they wanted to know what was changing. How did I do that? So they came and talked and then um, some came and talked and offered me a few dollars and I said, wonderful. And then before I knew it, that was my new profession, so to speak. Right. I never see myself as a counselor. I see myself as someone needing uh, work, someone who still has core beliefs that need correction. True. And I see myself now in a position where clients that come to me offer me an opportunity to continue my work. Ostensibly, it looks like I'm working with them, but I'm really just working with myself. And that's why I'm uh, so passionate about this work, because it's my own life. And I also recognize, of course, that my life is your life. And so as we're working together, we either both heal together or we put each other in jail. And I've I've spent too much time in jail. Right, right. Was that short enough? Oh, that's uh, that's absolutely, this is good. And um, so I would like to get straight into the meat of the subject. Uh, my first uh, question would be about shame. Shame, obviously, in my own life, I've, uh, I've carried an enormous amount of shame and uh, I've come to be able to heal a lot of it. So I'd love it if you could talk about shame and how you're healing your shame and helping others to do that. Right. Well, shame is just one form that guilt takes. There really is only guilt. Um, and that, that goes back to the primal guilt of uh, having been kicked out of paradise. We're no longer part of the oneness. We're no longer part of God. Uh, we're now on our own. We must have done something unspeakably horrible and disgusting in order to to be kicked out. So that that is the foundation. So shun form it takes. And uh, shame is such a ubiquitous feeling. It, it's absolutely universal. I mean, whenever we work with people, we use a funny thing. It's called a feeling sheet. Okay. So if you come to me and you have an upset and you're not sure what it's about or where it came from, then all we do is, okay, let's let's look at... Uh, what you're feeling right now, because it's not about your story. So then you go into it, you look at the feeling sheet, and one of the feelings on the sheet is shame. So then what we say is, are you willing to do this, Joanna, by the way, as a little experiment? Sure, absolutely. 
that would be really exciting for uh, just for, for for your listeners to hear how it might work for them as well. I'm not saying it will, but it might. Let's so go, Didi. Can you, can you think of a situation that you feel shameful about in your life? Well, let's go directly to um, not having been the mother that my children would have wanted me to be. Fantastic. What a great example. So you you feel and you believe or maybe you've even been told that you've not been the mother that uh, you think you should have been and your kids think you should have been. Exactly. So when you, when you hear that, you feel shame. Yep. So if you take that feeling of shame, can you take that back to leave the story of, of being a mother and having kids? So take that feeling of shame and take it back to when you were really little. And when the first time you really felt that same feeling, obviously not the same situation, but the same feeling, what was happening around you? Oh, uh, I, I was uh, four years old and uh, my grandmother had died. My mother's mother had died and mm -hmm. my mother was very, very, very upset. And I got up on her knees and I remember perfectly um, when I said to her, I'll be your mommy now. And she said to me, no, you can't do that. Great little illustration. So, what did you make up when your mom said, "No, you cannot do that"? I'm bad. I'm a, I'm inadequate. Uh, I I can't take care of my mother. perfect sense but how do I how do I unhook from that belief okay that's the next step so you've now established that you believe that you would never be a good mother I mean yes it's ridiculous for a four-year-old to say to her mama I'll be your mom yes. but where you came from you came from a nurturing desire you came from a desire to look after and take care of her and what you were told is you cannot do that So the belief you made up was that I'm not good enough, I will never be a good mother, what I have to offer, the love I have to offer is not going to be accepted. And the way to undo that is to do a forgiveness. And the forgiveness is not for your mom for what she said. The forgiveness is for you having be made up the belief. So you made up a belief that you're not lovable, that you'll never be a good mother. So then the forgiveness goes like this, Joanna. It goes, mm -hmm. forgive me for believing that I will never be a good mother. And then you respond to yourself and you say, that is not true. I made that up when I was four. I've lived as if, as if it is true. And my kids will probably say you were not a good mother. But that's only because you had that belief. It was just a belief. You mm -hmm. made it up. Let it go. It is not true. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
and that you may have to do a few times, a few hundred times, maybe a few thousand times, because mm-hmm. it's an old belief. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that shame probably plays out in other parts of your life as well. Right. Oh, definitely. And I can yeah. feel that in my solar plexus, and uh, I have tears coming. Wonderful. Yeah. But the tears, I believe, I mean, I can't see you, but my hunch is that the tears are tears of relief. It could be, could be. I can't tell right now, but it could be. It was just not true. It's something you made up. And you have another 20, 30, 40, 50 years, whatever you make up, you want to live in order to (laughs) practice that that is just not true. Yes. Just like I yeah. insanely made up that the camps were my fault. I lived as if that was true. Now, what kind of a person would be in charge of concentration camps? So that has to be a monster. Right. So I made up I was a monster. Right. You made up you would never be a good mother. Right. It is just not true. Right. But then it's an enormous amount of work because... Um, I could go to the fact that uh, many members of my family were killed in the concentration camps in uh, in Poland, and it's this is this is fraught with emotion. Is right. Yeah. So, and I was in my mummy's tummy in 1945 because I understand that we can go back to the womb with these things, and Absolutely. so. Uh, it is possible that I would think that these, the, this was my fault, that uh, uh, my mommy, um, my mommy had lost her mother, which was uh, uh, the last relative that didn't, or the one before last relative that didn't go, that wasn't killed. Yeah. And uh, then it goes very far back that those concentration camps and those relatives were my fault. Not only that, but also, you can well imagine what your mother was thinking in 1945, being pregnant with you. She wasn't thinking, this is the best thing that could happen to me. She was thinking, this is not a good time to be pregnant. Oh, for sure. For sure. So the message you got, the message you... And it's so funny, it's wonderful you're saying that, because I had the same experience a few years ago. I'll tell you the quick story. Sure. A few years ago, but five years ago, something... Uh, there was it was a Sunday at the center in Costa Rica, and everything was going wrong. And the feeling that came over me was a feeling I had never experienced before. So I went into the feeling, and the message of the feeling was, you should not have been born. Now, that's a thought I'd heard from other people, but I never had that direct message myself. So then I said, okay, I'm going to do a holotropic breathing on this, and I want to find out, when did I make up? I shouldn't have been born. And it was in utero. My mom was uh, was uh, escaping from the Japanese who had landed on Java, and she was fleeing into the mountains with my father. And of course, what was she thinking? Not a good time to be pregnant. Mm-hmm. What's the What's the message I got? I should not have been born. And you got exactly the same message. So the, the deep shame comes from that as well. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, you you can't leave that in the air. You immediately have to do the forgiveness, which is forgive me for believing I should not have been born. And the answer is that is insane. The mere fact that you are born says that you should have been born. 
the mere fact that you're here says you have a function to fulfill and all I need to do is drop all my silly beliefs and I can fulfill my function beautifully. Mm -hmm. Because there's a reason why I'm here and there's a reason why you're here. Mm -hmm. So let's go to um, cleaning the slate. I mean, there are uh, thousands of beliefs like that. And, you know, I'm so pleased to be speaking with you because I really believe that this is this is the great gift of our generation. I, I know there have been mystics uh, for a long time who've known this, but I think this is the great gift of the 60s, 50s generation that we can now look at the contents of our minds and, uh, and choose uh, which ones... Yeah, which ones we want to keep. Exactly. So, in our, in, in, yeah. go okay. ahead, go ahead, Dietrich. No, in other words, we, we are now realizing, uh, all of us, you and I, uh, for starters, that we are entirely the author of our experience in every sense of the word. So I get to choose. I get to choose every aspect of my life. And so you said there are many, many, many different beliefs. Actually, there aren't really that many. Uh-huh. Uh, when we work with people, there's three or four, and there really is only one, and that's the belief that I'm separate. That's the foundational belief. The belief that I'm separate is the foundation of all my guilt. Separate from of, what? From the oneness, from the universe, from God, if that's a word we can use, but definitely just from the oneness. I'm no longer part of oneness. I'm outside of the oneness. And it's not a surprise that the Bible starts with that story. How did, how did that happen? Well, I took a bite of the apple. What was the apple for? The apple was for to give me knowledge. But the knowledge that the apple was going to give me was the small k knowledge of making distinctions between things and people. Before there wasn't. Before there was just oneness. Everything was the same. Everything was self. Everything was God. Mm-hmm. The Upanishad talks about that very clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, he who sees everything as the self, and the self in everything he sees, such as here, withdraws from nothing. So if I can go back and recognize that everything is God, everything is love, and then I get to choose. What is my experience going to be like? I get to choose that. So I'm never a victim. Let's talk about this, one of my uh, pet subjects, the victim-perpetrator game, which I happen to um, hesitate to say believe, but, <laughs> but think uh, is tearing the world apart. Right. And so the, the first thing that I would do if, if you were sitting in front of me is how do you feel when you think that is tearing the world apart? Uh, helpless. Helpless. So one of your beliefs is that you're helpless. Is it true that you're helpless? No. It's not. It's just an old belief. So now we got that out of the way. The idea that 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 is happening is now out of the way. So the next step is to recognize that it is impossible to be a victim without at the same time being a victimizer. A perpetrator, yes. I'm a perpetrator, just as much as I'm a victim, because the two are linked. See, you cannot be a victim unless you can find a perpetrator. So if you have a strong belief that you're a victim, you're going to go around the planet looking for someone to victimize you, and you will find it. 
<laughs> and vice versa. Yeah. We always find our victimizer. We always find our victim. And that's why when I was in, uh, when I was in grade two, uh, I beat up the whole school. Every day at recess, I fought with the entire school. Why was that? Because I hated myself so much that I, I hated everybody else. So I became a bully from hell. And a bully will find people that have a belief in weakness, have a belief, a strong belief in victims. So I always found people that I was going to be bullying because they were looking for me. We found each other. Been there, done that, brought back the T-shirt a million times. Exactly. And so the beauty of that is that we can continue to say, poor me or poor you, or we can say we found each other in order to heal this belief. The belief is what's the issue. The belief is what's driving this world. The belief in scarcity, the belief in need, the belief in I'm not good enough, the belief in I need more, all those beliefs is what's driving the destruction of this planet. But they're just beliefs. They're not true. So how do you practice healing this? Do you... It starts with you. It starts with me. Um, Absolutely. And can it happen one person at a time? These enormous beliefs that are uh, that are um, very toxic. Uh, the beliefs are very toxic, but they're within me. That's the key. I cannot. I'm, I'm not going to be occupying my mind with issues in Cambodia. I'm only going to look at how do I treat you, how do I treat the person next to me, how do I treat my dog, that's what matters. So if all of us do nothing but extend love to the three or four people around us, we will have world peace. You can see that automatically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But because I don't want to do that, because I don't like you, I don't like you, I don't want to extend love to you, so what am I going to do? I'm going to go to Cambodia and do a lot of good work. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, the lack of world peace is in my mind. In the meantime, I still don't love you, which only means I still don't love me. So often when I run across people that do good all over the world, when I scratch the surface for two seconds, I find an incredible amount of self-hatred. Mm-hmm. Having said that, there's nothing wrong with going out on the planet and doing doing sure. wonderful things. Sure. Of course, sure. that's wonderful. Sure. But I have to look at what's my intention. So I'm really clear that the work that I'm doing is just because I need to heal. I'm okay. not doing it because I'm a wonderful person. Well, let's be very practical here. Um, we find ourselves, uh, so we'll, perhaps we know this, and we find ourselves in front of somebody else um, who says, yes, but I'm like this. This is not so easy for me to change this uh, because I'm like this. And yet the person knows that they're suffering from their beliefs. Uh, How do you approach this with somebody who says to you, yes, but that's how I am? that um, every day of the, of the week and of the year. That simply means that they have a great attachment to the suffering they're introducing to themselves. They are attached and they're addicted to their suffering. And so I can put, the, put it really simply, nobody has a character. The so-called character that people think I have 
is nothing other than the set of beliefs that I made up when I was little. Any of those beliefs can be changed provided there's motivation. So if I am addicted to suffering, I'm addicted to being miserable, I'm addicted to being angry and disappointed, then I am going to make it very difficult to heal that because that's my addiction. Yeah. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So what, what we work with, we don't, we work with a lot of addicts, but we don't ever talk about the substance they think they're addicted to because that's not the addiction we're working with. What we're working with is the underlying belief that makes me choose that substance. So, uh, for example, if I'm uh, a rip-roaring drunk, and I, I drink an average of a bottle of vodka a day. Yeah. <clears throat> that's a lot of booze. Me too. <laughs> I qualify, if you want to call AA, and I qualify as a full-fledged alcoholic. Yeah, I'm... I will never say I will never say that I'm an alcoholic because that puts a label on me, which I will not accept anymore. I used to hate myself so much that I virtually drank myself to death. That I'll say absolutely because that's true. But I'm not going to put a label on that because then the label becomes the next truth for me. How can I fall in love with the self if that self is labeled? whether you label it alcoholic, whether you label it bipolar, whether you label it chronically de depressive, depressed, whether, whatever you want to label it, it doesn't matter. The label becomes the personality and it will never disappear unless I say, no, thank you. I'm not taking that label. I'm not doing that. I'm going to look at the truth of me and the truth of me is the same as the truth of you, is the same as the truth of Buddha. That's who we are. That's the essence. Now, the character, that, what you were talking about earlier, the personality, that's who I, who I think I am, that's something I made up. I made it up myself. So there's a good, Nobody, part, to, there's a good part to who do you think you are. <laughs> exactly, exactly. That is the, that is the beautiful, liberating, liberating part of that question. Who do you think you are? Well, I think I'm lazy. I think I'm stupid. I think I'm dishonest. I think I'm a fraud. I think I'm all those things. But none of them are true. I made those up. They're not true. They're all parts of, of a belief system that I think is me. Okay. And I, I have, sorry to interrupt you, but I have a couple of things for you. Yeah. Uh, one is, um, so you have somebody who is an alcoholic, and I'll, I'll speak in the, in the I statement. Uh, I've, I've been sober 30 years, and for a long time I went to AA, and uh, I said I'm an alcoholic and a drug addict. I don't go for 10 years now, but it still serves me when I want to take a drink. Uh, it reminds me that um, I I, the way I believe it, I rendered myself totally allergic to alcohol, and it would really not be a good idea, I believe, for me to drink a bottle of vodka because my, oh. my allergy would come back. Absolutely. So, <laughs> but I mean, I pro yeah. I, what I mean by that is that I'm happy that I programmed my brain to really believe by saying it a million times that I'm allergic to alcohol. So that works for you. Yeah. Stay with, stay with it. Don't worry about it. That's absolutely wonderful. I do it somewhat differently for myself. 
So let's say that um, there's a bottle of vodka in front of me, and part of my mind says, uh, why don't we just drain that bottle? Yeah. Immediately, my training would say, what would that be for? What would I get to be right about if I did that? Yeah. I would get to be right about that I'm a total vicious, nasty, horrible creature, whatever whatever the labels are. Right. Is that who I am? No, that's not who I am. So you see, we're, we're arriving at the same place of not using, but we're coming from a, from a different path. And I'm not saying your path is better or my path is better, no. they're just different paths. Right. But the question always is, what is this for? So it wouldn't enter my mind, for example, to do heroin. Uh, why not? Because I don't hate myself. And I know full well that doing heroin would be an expression of hating myself. The same with excess booze. I drink uh, probably, realistically, if I'm honest, uh, three or four beers a week. Um, and totally enjoy them. I never have the desire to go out and buy another two cases, which I did 20 years ago. Right. I would buy another two cases, and before it, I'd have had 30 beers, and the next day, I'd feel totally like shit, and I don't, that's not me. So, we're coming at the same, we're having the same results, coming from a slightly different position. So, my question is always is, what would this be for? And the answer has to be totally honest. It would be to prove that I'm a vile creature. Is that who I am? No, it's not. I made that up a long time ago. So the four-year-old, and the same four-year-old that you felt that was shameful, that's the one that wants to drink. The four-year-old that will never be a good mother. Well, if I can never be a good mother, in other words, I can never give and receive love like I think other people can, I might as well drink. I deserve to get drunk. I deserve to get drunk, because then yeah. nobody expects anything from me, and sooner or later I'll die, probably sooner. And that's what I really want. So uh, let's go to the symptom because uh, in, in your centers you um, assist people, collaborate with people in, for instance, uh, letting go of um, psychological drugs such as uh, yeah antidepressants. So the reason I would take an antidepressant is I would say to myself, uh, well, I have a depressive uh, nature. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, and you believe it. Yeah, so speak yeah. to me about what you would say to one of your clients who comes to you taking a couple of antidepressants. an antidepressant is exactly the same as a bottle of vodka. It is simply, I don't like who I think I am, and society has made it acceptable for me to take medication. Society has said being a drunk is not a good thing. So I'm going to take medication, but it's exactly the same thing. Because I can't stand who I look... When I look in the mirror, I can't stand what I see. And then I go to my psychiatrist, and he immediately tells me, well, you're, you're a depressive nature. You need this medication. And because I don't want to dig deep and heal that belief, uh, mostly because I don't know I can, I believe this man or this woman. And I take the pill and I feel better. But I've never met someone who's on psychotropic medication who feels absolutely joyful forever afterwards. It doesn't work that way. It's a masking of the self-hatred. 
So when you take your pill, when you take your medication, for the time it's working in your system, you don't have to look at your self-hatred. It's nicely covered up. And that's why you have to keep taking it. And that's also why, uh, in most cases, the dose has to be increased and or a different uh, medication has to be added to it because eventually it doesn't work. Does that make sense? Yes, it makes it makes a lot of sense. But then so, I, so I, I would ask you about, uh, because obviously you do that uh, exercise with people who... Uh, well, I completely understand that people who come to you have a desire to stop whatever the whatever the symptoms they're practicing that uh, that are masking their self hatred. So first of all, there's a desire to stop. Exactly. Uh, but what do you do? How do you work with people who've been taking antidepressants or heroin or whatever it is for a long time and have? Um, have uh, side effects? Well, everybody has side effects, and that's inevitable. So what you're looking at, if somebody comes to us, and no matter what they're on, whether it's a legal or an illegal substance, we're going to look very, very carefully at the uh, withdrawal symptoms. We don't do that. We have professionals, uh, doctors and psychiatrists, who will prescribe a protocol of how to get off uh, without endangering your mental or physical well-being. That's number one. So we don't get involved in that. We're not experts in that, and we don't want to take the responsibility. So you come to us and you're two, on two or three antidepressants, uh, one in the morning, one in the evening, whatever you're taking, and you say, I want to be free of this. Then I say, go talk to your doctor who prescribes this and ask for a protocol of how to withdraw. Now, we found that in by far the majority of the cases, the prescribing professional will not cooperate (laughs) because he he or she will say, you will be on this medication the rest of your life because you have a disorder. If that happens, then you just let us know what you're taking, and then we'll send it to two or three psychiatrists that we do work with who don't buy it and who will simply say that's also not true. If you take it down uh, in a very gradual, very controlled way, you'll be just fine. And then as you're going off the medication or the booze or the heroin or whatever it is, we will fill the vacuum that is left by the, the taking away of the substance with the truth. So the withdrawal symptoms that people have with us are a fraction of what they are in the outside world. We've had people go off medication here that a psychiatrist would say that's impossible. They would have died doing that. Well, they didn't. And that's because the the emptiness that is left when you remove the substance is filled with the truth. And that's why it works with so painlessly, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or at least relatively painlessly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if you're willing to look in the mirror and say, it's simply not true that I have a depressive nature, I made that up a long time ago, then you're on your way. But if you keep thinking, oh, well, that's the label I got and that's what I must be, then nothing will ever change. It won't change. What's, um, what's your position uh, on um, entheogens or psychedelics or the plant medicines of the earth, such as ayahuasca or um, MDMA for PTSD and so on? 
I, I think there's a role for absolutely everything provided it leads to uh, self-examination and self-correction of mistaken beliefs. So ayahuasca, for example, will tell you, will teach you what you need to work with. It will not do the work for you. It will show you where you need to do your work. That's invaluable. Uh, that's just one method. There are many others. Uh, I don't, I have no problem with any of them unless they become a lifestyle. Right. So the only way I can be happy and uh, recover from PTSD is by doing MDA every day, then that's not a, that's not a cure. Absolutely. That is a band-aid. Absolutely. PTSD can, can be overcome really quickly. Um, we actually we have somebody at the center right now who is absolutely astonished at how quickly it's disappearing. But it will not disappear if I'm medicated. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll stay in it because I, don't, I can't even look at it anymore. It's now medicated. I don't feel it anymore. If I can't feel it, then I can't heal it. Tidrick, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I, I would like to talk about love with you. And uh, I would really appreciate if you would be willing to talk about love and the growing of love, the growth of love within yourself, uh, coming from uh, the place of desolation and separation that you were in. Mm -hmm. Well, the the love that that I think you're talking about is is always self-love. Uh, love of other is not something that I am capable of and certainly wasn't capable of 20 years ago because I had no idea what it was. So joyful, totally joyful acceptance is what love is. So if I joyfully accept my partner, and that means that absolutely nothing about her needs to change in any way at all, then that is love. I have not met anyone who is in that place. Um, I mean, my ego will always throw in, yeah, I will do that as soon as she, and then fill in the blank, how she needs to change, and then I'll love her. Or I used to love her before she did whatever she's doing now. So the ego doesn't have a clue what love is. But all love is self-love. All love is love of the self. If I don't love the self, which is the truth within me, if I don't recognize the truth within me, I will never love anything or anyone. It's impossible. So the work that we do is mutual. I work on seeing the truth in you, and at the same time that I'm doing that, seeing the truth in you and only seeing the truth in you, at the same time I'm beginning to see the truth in me. And that's the purpose of the relationship. Speak more about that if you wish. The purpose of the relationship is to look at all the reasons why I'm blocking your love. I say I love you and you say you love me, but before a week is over and we had a a week of wonderful wild sex and everything was fantastic, I've never been so in love in my life, you bring me a cup of coffee and you forgot to put sugar in, and now I don't love you quite as much. (laughs) Or, Or you say you'll be home at five and you actually come home at quarter after five and you didn't even call. Uh, begin to get second second thoughts about this relationship. It doesn't take long, because what happens is my self-hatred is going to scan the relationship for evidence that my self-hatred is justified. 
So if you don't put that, that little sugar in my coffee in the morning, which you bring me every morning, I love you for it, but then one morning you forget to put the sugar in, that can only mean that you don't love me. It can never mean that you forgot to put the sugar in. That's not how the ego works. <laughs> you, the ego works on blame. So what, what the relationship is for is to look at all those instances in a day, and there's no more than three or 400 times in a day that you're triggered by your partner. Those are all opportunities to say, to look, to take it back and say, this is about me. I'm seeing something in me right now that I don't like. I wonder what it is. Okay, it's the belief that I'm not loved. That just was shown with the coffee. That's not true. I made that belief up 70 years ago. This is insane. Mm-hmm. I'm living it again. And then I look at my partner and say, it's perfectly fine you forgot the sugar. It doesn't matter at all because I know who you are. And at this moment, I know who I am. Now, even if my partner intentionally doesn't put the sugar in, which could happen. I mean, let's say we've, we've had a, a, a nasty fight and we're not over the fight yet. And, and she knows how to get it, how to get to me. Just don't put the sugar and see what happens to the poor bastard. You globalistic. It doesn't matter. It is still my work. It's still my work. So I still take 100% ownership of the upset. That's the key to this work. It's never, ever, ever, ever the other person that needs to change. It's only the eye that makes the interpretation that it's going to be transformed. I um, I couldn't agree more, and yet it's uh, it's a lifelong uh, it's a lifelong work. I come yeah. from I come from a place where. 40 years ago, if I broke a nail, I thought I deserved to die. Exactly. Brilliant. And one of my worst memories is in a relationship 25 years ago when uh, we were in full bliss and uh, he came home and he brought colored paper towels. And I thought that if he didn't bring white paper towels... Oh man, nobody would ever love me. <laughs> they didn't know. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So you understand exactly how it works. Oh, I he do. Brought colored, <laughs> he brought colored paper towels. Well, that's. I think that's cause for divorce, right? Uh, yeah, it was. It was cause for uh, the greatest abandonment. But then the beauty of it is that it it brings the belief of abandonment to the surface. Exactly, and who deserves to be abandoned? No one. Yeah. Oh, that's true. Yeah. But who, who, is, or who is going to be a Me, me, me. Always yeah. me. What? Why you? <laughs> Why are you abandoned? Why am I abandoned? Well, because uh, I, um, I, I fabricated concentration camps. Exactly. Remember what your mom said to you when you were four. Can't take care of me. I don't want your love. Your love is not good enough. I, that says I will be abandoned. At that moment, you were abandoned. Dietrich. Abandonment. Yeah. Sorry, sorry, I don't want to interrupt you. No, go ahead. Dietrich, can we love our ego? No. No. What, what, what the only thing I can do with the ego is to begin to really understand what it is and where it came from and then relinquish it. It doesn't want to be loved because it doesn't know what love is. So there's no reason, there's no purpose of loving it. But there's a great deal of purpose in recognizing that it's utterly and totally insane, 
that I made it up, that it's completely of my own construction, and that there are aspects of it that seem to work for me. Those I will keep using. I have compassion. I have compassion for my ego. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. Does it have compassion for you? <laughs> it will rip your throat out at the first opportunity. So I, I just want to be really alert to my ego and recognize what it's up to. What it's up to, remember it's got me kicked out of paradise, it's going to keep doing that. <clears throat> it was my ego that said, oh, go ahead, take a bite of the apple, it's okay. So I did, and here I am. I'm, I don't trust a single thing my ego ever says. I'm not interested in implicating it or cajoling it. I just know what it's up to. It wants my destruction. That's all. And that's okay. But I have to, um, maybe it'd be beneficial to do a little qualifying at this point, and that is to, yeah. to give you the model that I work with for the mind. And the mind, for the way I work with it, has three parts. The first part is the ego. The ego runs the show, and if I don't know any better, it will run the show my whole life. It's just a set of beliefs. It's a thought. It's a thought that can be separate. It's a thought that can be abandoned. It's a thought I could be a bad father or a bad mother. That's the ego. It's just a thought. The second part of my mind is um, what is the loving part of my mind. Call it the Holy Spirit. Call it, call it the part of mind that goes with God. Call it whatever you want to call it. But it's, it's an unchangeably innocent, loving force within me. The third part of my mind is the decision maker. And in 99.99% of the people that I've worked with, they don't have a clue about the decision maker. But the decision maker is very simply that part of my mind that grows up and it says, okay, I can listen to the ego now. So go back to being four years old. Let's say that you knew about the decision maker at that point. Mm -hmm. Let's say you knew this work at that point, which of course you didn't, but assume you did. And your mom says, you can't be my mother. Your ego immediately interprets that as there's something wrong with the quality of your love. You'll never be a good mother. You'll never be able to take care of people. And you listen to that and you say, yeah, I, I know you were going to say that because you've always said that. I'm going to ask my loving self, how can I hear this differently? And the loving self would say, your mother's really sad right now. This is not going in. She's not receiving your offer at the moment. That's okay. You feel the difference? Absolutely, absolutely. So the, mind, the mind training that we work with and that I work with for myself is to get the decision maker to be stronger and stronger. So the nasty little ego judgments that come in all day long, 24 hours a day, are going to be interrupted, intercepted by the decision maker who says, yeah, okay, I hear that. I'm going to ask my higher self. The higher self, I, I always compare it to a GPS. It's a loving GPS. You've driven with the GPS in your car. Right. It, it will say at the next uh, intersection, make a right. <laughs> yeah. if, you don't, if you don't make a right, it doesn't say, you stupid asshole, I told you to make a right, now you're on your own. That's what the ego does. <laughs> it's very lovely. It's in the same tone of voice it says at the next intersection, make a right. <laughs> That's how the loving self works. So the loving self is always there to guide me, provided I ask. A GPS does not work unless I turn it on. Same with the loving self. Mm -hmm. if, if I don't ask my loving self, let me look at that statement my mom made uh, all these many years ago. 
I want to see it differently. Then the loving self will immediately give you a different way of seeing it. And that's the power of this work. In other words, it's never too late to have a happy childhood. You're reinterpreting everything that happened a long time ago and seeing it differently, and thereby all the other subsequent experiences fall into place and change accordingly. That's the beauty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So then all the nasty shit that I think I did, I'm going to look at differently. Or that, for example, my father beat me four or five times a week. What did that say about me? Well, my ego says, it says you were a horrible little kid. Mm-hmm. Obviously, otherwise you wouldn't have done it. My higher self said, your father didn't know how to love. It said nothing about you. It said he just didn't know. Mm-hmm. Now, which feels better? Right, right. And that's how you make the new neuropaths. Yes, and that's a whole other interesting conversation. Exactly, and that's really what this work is about, is to, to change the neuropaths from the six-lane highway that the ego travels every day to a new path. And we always compare it to making a path in the rainforest. When you want to make a path in the rainforest, you need a strong arm and a machete. And yes, if you work really hard, you can make a path. Now, if you leave that path for a week and you come back, you won't find it because it's overgrown. It's the same with this work. So doing one correction, as we did with your shame uh, about not being a good mom, one correction is the beginning of the path in the rainforest. Right. Now, your job is to widen that path to a 12-lane highway to where your automatic thinking takes the new highway instead of the old, uh, beaten-down, judgmental, horrible path that the ego will automatically send you on. That's your default program. You have to change your default program. That's what we're doing. So the thought comes in, I was a bad mother. Or maybe Lyra will call you tomorrow and... and uh, reproach you for something you did 30 years ago. Immediately, your feeling will say, I was a bad mother. Then you, you're now trained, let's assume you're trained, uh, to say, hang on a minute, I'm hearing that I was a bad mother, and that's what I always hear. I wonder if there's another way of hearing this. You don't say that to her, you say it to yourself. And then you hear, Lara's just crying for love. She just wants your love. I hear you. That's all it is. Yeah. She's not, she's not, mad at you, when I'm angry, when she's angry, it just means she's feeling guilty. Why would she be feeling guilty? Because she thinks I didn't love her. That's why she feels guilty. Wow. And it's actually true. I didn't love her because I didn't know how to. And I was told when I was four that I could never love anyone properly. Wow, Mm. here we are, both of us playing the same game. I'm stepping out. I'm not doing it. It's not true. And then every conversation ends with, I love you, because that's the truth. That's right. That's right. Well, um, I love your approach, and uh, I, um, I will be, um, I would be uh, working with the fruits of this conversation myself, of course. So I would like to ask you, Didrik, um, what would you like to say in closing to the people who are listening to us? Well, to the people who are listening, um, I, would, I would suggest that if there's a part of your life 
that you're not thrilled with, then allow yourself the opportunity to recognize that it doesn't have to be that way, that there is another way, that there is a better way, that no matter what you think you're experiencing, that it is not fixed, that eventually you'll see that you can choose another experience provided you're willing to put in a little work in. And then, and then the question always is, are you willing to do that work? Are you worth doing that work? And the answer has to be a resounding yes. That's my birthright. My birthright is to be happy. I'm going to claim it. There's no reason ever why I couldn't be happy. Oh, says the ego, I heard that. Let me give you a couple hundred reasons why you're not happy. <laughs> and then you say, yeah, I've heard that. But I'm not, I'm not talking about that anymore. That's not true. I made those up. I, <clears throat> a long time ago, I heard a fantastic line, and it says, uh, when you die, Joanna, there will be a stone, and the stone says, here lies Joanna, she had a rich and full life, or all the reasons why not. Mm-hmm. And the reasons why not, I made up. They're never true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm withdrawing from that, from that path. Mm-hmm. We're going to start a new path, mm-hmm. and then we keep it open, and we're going to do the work that is required, because I deserve it, and you deserve it. We're worth it. Thank you so much, Diedrich, for being with us today. It's, a, it's an honor to have you with us. Thank you very much for your generosity of time, your generosity of spirit, uh, the beautiful openness of your questions and your approach. And it was an absolute delight.